If you have a Bible, you can open it to Romans, or if you have a scripture journal, you can just open it. Um, we, are, uh, we are now two weeks in. We're on week two of what we project to be probably a year in Romans, to be honest. Um, and uh, if, uh, if that sounds a little daunting and overwhelming to you, uh, well, hopefully you don't feel that way. Um, I promise you there is enough in Romans to spend a year talking about, um, and that's going quickly. Um, last week, we talked about the beginning of, of the book, uh, of Paul's letter to the church in Rome, and a little bit about what that church looked like. And we're going to talk a lot more about the church in Rome as we go on in this letter and as we go on in this study. Uh, but last week, we stopped at verse 15 of chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 16. It is hard to talk about the beginning of Romans and stop before you get to Romans 1.16. It's like watching a movie and then turning it off right before the best part at the end, it feels like. It's like, come on, just... And you know, I got to tell you, it took a lot of self-control to, to stop there, but... Uh, Romans 16, 1, 16, and 17 are two verses that take, uh, that, that are worth, that, that require that we stop and we really look at them because they are widely considered to be really the theme of Romans. And, uh, and a theme is important in a letter like this that Paul writes, especially considering how significant Romans is. So if you have a Bible and you open it to Romans chapter 1, we're only going to be in two verses this morning. You're like, oh, hey, I can see how this is going to take us a year to get through this. But you're going to see this morning why we need to go through it at this speed because of how much is there. Romans 1 verse 16 and 17 say this. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now we're actually... Uh, talking here about, as we talk about Romans, we're talking about the gospel. This is Paul's great work of his life where he talks to the Roman church about the beauty of and the implications of and his arguments for the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so as we spend this time in Romans, we spend this time talking about the gospel. And one of the Hardest things to wrap our mind around about the gospel itself is simply this. According to the Bible, according to those who present and give the gospel, all you have to do is believe it. You just have to put your faith and trust in the message of the gospel itself and you benefit from it. You participate in it. You've done all that you need to do. That is one of the hardest things to wrap our minds around is how that even works. How you can simply say you must believe and you're then saved by this thing. I mean, belief, believe. Like what? So how do we know if this person believes? How do I even know really if I believe in and trust in the gospel if I do indeed want the benefits of it? 
As we work through these two verses, we're going to do it in what I hope is the most confusing way possible because it's just too easy to go through two verses. We're actually going to work through it backwards. Now, here's the way that Paul, I know, I know, I know. You're like, come on, take it easy on us. Like, here's the way that Paul works. When Paul gets excited about something, which he's pretty much excited through all of Romans, when he gets excited about something, he works his way backwards. He talks about a thing that depends on a thing that means about a thing that talks about a thing that depends on a thing that connects to a thing. And so you actually start sometimes at the end because that's the thing that he's talking about. And then he's saying all these things about it and how great that is. And that's what we're going to do this morning. So we're actually going to look first at verse 17 where Paul says this. For for in it, he's talking about the gospel, uh, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The subject that Paul is uh, talking about, or the thing he's talking about as he talks about the gospel itself, is righteousness. He's talking about righteousness, about what uh, that is. And how a righteous person lives. Now, we talk about this word righteous and righteousness. It's not crazy or surprising that we would talk about it in a place like church because this is the place that we associate with where a person is righteous or how a person behaves or or is who's righteous. The word righteous is one that we've heard, we've all heard before. It's one you expect to read about in the Bible, talk about at church. If you look up a dictionary definition, like Webster's Dictionary of, uh, of Righteous and what that means, it would essentially in some way or another describe a person who is morally right, who is justifiable, who is virtuous. A person or conduct, meaning behavior, that is right, that is virtuous, that is morally good. Okay, So a righteous Man or woman is someone, according to our understanding of it as a society and as a culture, is someone who is good, someone who's virtuous, someone who does the right things. And what Paul says about the righteous man, the righteous person, he says that they shall live by faith. The righteous man shall live by faith. So what that now that tells us something that we also have, you know, it's not a huge surprise to us, the, the way that righteousness works. If you think of a person who is truly a good person, who's truly a virtuous person, who's a great example of what it means to be the way we ought to be as people, that person isn't just doing what comes natural and easy to them. No, we learn from when we're young and when we're children that if you want to do the right thing, you're going to have to try to do the right thing. You're going to have to make a decision or a choice to do what is right. It's not just going to be a matter of you doing what comes natural to you. The truly righteous people, the truly virtuous people, the truly morally good people are not people who just were raised that way and get to go live out their lives. They're people who dedicate themselves to it. And so it's not a surprise really that Paul would say that the righteous shall live by faith because uh, the good person lives uh, by what they believe in. You could pick any issue in the world today that people are fighting over, and I can guarantee you that people on both sides of that fight are seeking to be righteous, are seeking uh, to live out what they believe and determine and and live out and, and enact in the world even what they believe to be what it is to really truly be good for everyone. You see, the righteous do live by faith. Because the righteous aren't just doing whatever their impulses tell them to do. They believe in something. And that something is what it is that makes someone good. And they have devoted themselves to that thing, no matter how hard it is, usually a great sacrifice to themselves. 
The general understanding of how this works is pretty simple. The righteous man is one with great faith in the idea that God's way is the best way. God's way is the best way. And no matter what cost, no matter what sacrifices involves, no matter how inconvenient it is, or no matter how much resistance that we encounter because of it, choosing to do the right thing and choosing to be the right kind of person will lead to good things in the end. If God's way is uh, the way of righteousness, then what it is to, you were to point to a Christian person and say, man, that person is righteous. Why is that person righteous? Because of their faith, right? That's how we think of it, right? Why do I seek to be righteous? Well, because of my faith, because of what I believe. That drives me to want to do good. And it's not unnecessarily easy to do it. It's not very easy at all to be a righteous person. It will be better for all of us, for our whole world, in the end, if people chose to do these things, to live this way, to act this way, to believe in this. And so the righteous does indeed live by faith. And in all honesty, the people who are not righteous, the people who don't strike us that way as morally upright or good or virtuous, uh, they either don't really uh, believe in a thing that calls them to righteousness, they don't have something to put their faith in to work towards, or uh, they do kind of get what leads to righteousness, but they're just too weak to do it, right? They're not disciplined enough. They're not willing to do the hard work of being the right kind of person, doing the right kind of thing. When you look up the definition of the word righteous in our English dictionary, you get a person who is morally good, morally upright, and who does the right thing. But that is not even remotely close to the Bible's definition and description of righteousness. The biblical term, this word here used for righteousness, is actually a relational word. It doesn't have to do with what we see in our dictionary today in the English language. It has to do with what it looks like for two people to have a relationship that's doing well. So think less of a law-abiding citizen as a righteous person and think more of a faithful spouse as a righteous person. Because uh, if you look this up in the Greek and if you even compare it to the understanding of what righteousness was in the Old Testament before that, you see that to be righteous, when Paul's talking about righteous, when he's saying the righteous shall live by faith, what he's saying is the person, the good person, is the one who is in a right relationship with God. If there is a single thing that the Bible would tell us the most clearly it is, that we would do well to make sure that we are in a right relationship with God, our Creator. That to not be in a good relationship with Him, to have a relationship with Him that's severed, that's not in a good place, is trouble. It is trouble for the world, it is trouble for you, it is trouble for me. In fact, uh, this, this idea is so relational in nature that you can't really pursue righteousness if there's not a relationship with someone to pursue it with. It's like trying to be a good spouse without being married. It's like trying to be a good friend without having any friends. It's like trying to be a good parent without having any kids. I'm sure there's people that try to do that. It's probably super weird. Why? Because you can't really be good at a relationship without the person and without the relationship to do that in. 
When you look at the understanding of what righteousness looks like in the Old Testament, often we see this phrase used again and again, and the phrase that's used to describe righteous people is uh, people who have uh, found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This idea of finding favor in the Lord. So uh, in Genesis 6, when we first find out about Noah, when we first hear about Noah, after all the evil and horribleness of the world, the first thing that the Bible tells us about him is simple. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. It doesn't say Noah did good things. Noah was a great guy. Noah followed all the rules. It says Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. What mattered was how God saw you. That was what righteousness looked like. Beyond that, we read in Genesis 19, uh, this is about Lot, as Sodom and Gomorrah and all that's going down. It says, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, is what he says to God. He, the one that God saves, is one who is righteous, meaning he has found favor in God's sight. God seems to like him, seems to approve of him, seems to say our relationship is good. One of the best examples of this is in Genesis 33, where Moses is talking to God after the tablets have been broken. He wants the law on tablets again, and he says, Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Well, that's a confusing phrase, right? That's like something out of Romans or something, right? Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. What in the world is going on here? Did this guy just run out of stuff to say? I mean, I guess that would make sense if you were talking to God. You'd get a little nervous and start repeating yourself in a way that doesn't make a lot of sense. No, because it's actually really fascinating what Moses here, somebody that seems to have found favor in God's sight, is saying is he's like, it's almost like God chooses to find favor with this person. And then Moses is like, okay, fine. Would you give me the law so that I can live in such a way that I can find favor in your sight? It's like... It's like, God, you had to be good with me in order to give me the law for this people so that we could then go on living as a people who have found favor in your sight. This is a great description of the Jewish people, really. A group of people that God simply chooses. He simply chooses them uh, and says, you will be my people. Not because of how great you are, but because I've chosen that you're going to be my people. And because of that, you're now righteous. God does this thing in the Bible that's incredible and it's easy to overlook, and it is this. He declares people righteous. He gives righteousness to people. Hold on, I'm jumping ahead. I'm getting too into that, and it's hard, it's hard because it's, it's, I think it's the best part of this, but when the Old Testament talks about what it is to be righteous in a good relationship with God, it is talking about finding favor with God. And even Moses himself is seeking the law so that he can live in response, the people can live in response to the fact that they have already found favor in God's eyes, which is a very good thing. So when Paul says to the church in Rome, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith, he is saying the people who have a good relationship with God, who are good with God, are the righteous people. And the way that they do that is they live by faith. They live by an active trust in a thing 
that you're willing to put your life in, right? Uh, when we think about faith, you can, you can say you uh, have faith in the chair, but you don't really have faith in the chair until you sit in the chair, right? You can say you have faith in the rope, but you don't have faith in the rope until the weight of your body is depending on that rope, okay? That's the difference between faith and all the other aspects and all the other like, levels of trust that a person could have in their life. Faith is different from just having a little bit of trust. Faith is, I put all my eggs in this basket. I've got everything in this. And so the righteous live by faith. Those with good relationship with God live by trust, a dependence that their very lives are wrapped up in. And with what Paul uh, and again, this is kind of confusing, right? We're starting at the end. What the righteous person does, the righteous person lives by faith. It's like they're sustained by faith. They have to have faith. They need that. It doesn't say discipline. It doesn't say effort. It doesn't say self-denial. It doesn't say strength. It doesn't say devotion. It says the righteous shall live by faith, which is an active trust in something. You go back and you see what this righteousness looks like. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Now, if you were to unpack all the grammar of this one half of a verse, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. The righteousness of God even. Just those four words. If you were to unpack that and look at the way that it's been written and look at what those verbs and all of that means in relationship to each other, what it tells us is this thing called the righteousness of God is a thing that comes to the person talking. They receive it. Now that is really, really important. God's righteousness is this thing that is created outside of us and then it comes to us which means there is nothing that we do to make this righteousness come about. Now, that may be very disheartening for you to hear. You might be like, well, hang on a second. I've been spending years of my life working very hard to try to be righteous. And you're telling me that none of that produces righteousness? Well, yeah. I mean, Paul is, so you can be mad at him. What I'm telling you is that we don't have the ability physically, to produce righteousness. And believe it or not, that's a hard thing for us to accept, especially if you're a person. I mean, you go, isn't this great news, right? Isn't this great news that righteousness of God is a thing? Righteousness of God is like, it's like a description of this thing that exists out here, and then it comes to us. We receive it. It's not a thing that we produce, not a thing that we make. The emphasis here is on it being a gift that is received by someone. That's great news unless you're a person who values things like self-reliance, unless you're a person who values things like independence, unless you're a person who values things like the need to accomplish righteousness for yourself. If at the end of the day, your pursuit of goodness and virtue is driven by doing it yourself, this is not the greatest news ever. This is sort of like a stumbling block, really, on that path, isn't it? And before you say, no, Ed, I would never make the mistake of trying to think that I could do this on my own and produce this on my own, then you're definitely very different from me because I've spent a long time trying to produce righteousness of my own 
And if we're honest and we're self-aware, we can maybe recognize the fact that we have a tendency to do this too. Righteousness is something that is made somewhere else and then given to me. I enjoy uh, woodworking. I say I enjoy woodworking. Uh, I don't say I can really do woodworking. I'm going to go with I enjoy it, okay? Um, It takes me way too many tries to make a certain thing. I'll just say that. But the thing that they say, one of the funny things they say to woodworkers is, uh, whoever they is, is they say, uh, old wise woodworkers will say to young learning woodworkers is they'll say, don't show people the flaws, okay? That's like this thing. It's the weirdest thing is that when you make something, you automatically have this like instinct to say, yeah, I didn't get it quite right here. And you can see that thing there. And right over here, the finish is a little weird. And there's a splinter over there. And I had to put a sticker over this thing. So don't lift that up. You don't want to see it. You know, like that's like this weird thing that they do. And it is totally true. That's the thing that people do. But they do that for a reason. I, I mean, I built a chessboard uh, for, at my house. And, 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 and there's a difference between somebody picking that thing up and thinking I bought it on Amazon and thinking that I built it. Because if they thought I bought it on Amazon, they'd probably be like, uh, how much did you pay for this thing? But if they know that I built it, then they'll be like, oh, well, that's pretty good, right? It's like cutting your own hair, right? I mean, you, if you cut your own hair, your own hair, not even someone in your family, it's like, okay, there's a difference too. That's actually pretty good considering you cut your own hair, right? There, there's, a, there's a certain degree of pride, and there's a different sort of judgment standard, a, a, a sort of a, a standard, if you will, for the things that we do ourselves and make ourselves because we take pride in things that we do ourselves, Right? If you're a gardener and you like to grow vegetables and you like to feed your family other things that you grow, there is a difference between I grew this myself when eating it and I just went down to the store and bought it like a schmuck, right? There's a difference between those two things. I mean, I'm the guy who grows it myself and then goes down to the store to buy it from the store like a schmuck because I grew it wrong. That's what I do. As you can see, I spend my time very well. I mean, the truth is there, there is a difference between uh, just going and getting something from outside of yourself and producing something yourself. We take pride in that. We appreciate that. We enjoy that. And you know what? Honestly, if we're, if we're honest, if we're going to make it ourselves and do it ourselves, uh, we probably aren't going to expect, maybe always expect, at least in the beginning as we're learning how to do it, the level, uh, the quality that we might get from somebody who's more of a professional at doing it themselves. According to Paul, a person who's concerned with being righteous, with the righteousness of God, is a person who is going to have to know, first and foremost, how to receive righteousness from God, not be a person who's going to know how to produce righteousness in themselves. Righteousness is a gift that God gives to us. He gives to those who... Um, He chooses. He gives to those who have faith in Him and believe in Him and trust in Him It is not something that is produced by them, which means we have to be good at receiving gifts. And there's all kinds of gifts that you can get. I mean, Christmas is right around the corner. There is no song that uh, gets wrong the spirit of Christmas more than Santa Claus is coming to town because the song makes him seem like a guy who's literally watching your behavior all year and then trying to decide if you've earned a present. That doesn't sound very generous, does it? Thanks, Santa, for watching me all year. I mean, could you imagine if that was actually how it worked, that like our Christmas gifts were based on our behavior all year long? That would not be a gift, would it? That would not be a very good gift giver. That isn't even really a gift giver. 
that's just a person who gives us something we worked for and we deserved. But that's also something that we're kind of used to. That's actually kind of the way the world seems to work. And it's honestly the thing that we're the most comfortable with. Because I don't know about you, but I'd rather have something I know I earned rather than something that I think I didn't earn. Then you have like the godfather gift giver, right? A little different from Santa. The godfather is, you definitely didn't earn it, but trust me, you will one day, right? You come to me on the day of my daughter's wedding. You ask this of me, right? There's going to be a time when you'll get a call and I'll ask for a favor and you'll do it, right? So uh, that gift receiving comes knowing that you haven't done anything yet, but you're going to do something really big down the road and you're prepared to do it. A lot of us think of God and righteousness working that way. I haven't done it yet, but it's coming. And when it comes, I better be ready to step up. Otherwise, I'm not deserving of this righteousness. Then there is the father who loves their children, who gives the gift freely, not based on the behavior, not based on the hard work of the child themselves. I have a friend who has five children, and they wrote down, it makes sense that when you have five kids, you have to write a lot more stuff down. And so they wrote down, um, in like his wife wrote down in kind of her journal, uh, the Christmas gifts that they were buying all their kids. And so then they went out and they bought the gifts. And their son, he's kind of the bad one, he found the journal and he read it to all the kids. He told them all, this is what we're all getting for Christmas. And then they're like, now what do we do, right? Do we give the presents still? I mean, they, four of them didn't do anything wrong, and he did something wrong, but honestly, if we based his gift-giving on his behavior, he would never get a Christmas present because he's the bad one, right? Relatively speaking, they're all pretty corrupt. The loving parent chooses to continue to give despite how deserving the child is. There really is no place that we see free gifts out of love better played out than in our families and our relationships, hopefully healthy, good ones. Do you want righteousness enough to accept it knowing that you haven't earned it is the question for the person hearing the gospel. What Paul is describing when he says the righteousness of God is a phrase that has been studied for thousands of years by brilliant people seeking to understand all that is encompassed by this simple phrase. Because the righteousness of God is the only way that we can live. It is the only way that we can be saved. It is the only way that we can have life. It is the only hope for the world in which we live, that's for sure, and the people that we love and care about. And the righteousness from God, according to Paul, is a thing that is created, that, is, that happens outside of us, and is given to us. So the question for us is, how good are we at receiving it? And what must one do to receive this thing? This righteousness of God that comes from the outside depends not on effort and work, but on faith, on trust in the giver of the thing, in trust that he really is giving out of love and not expecting us to earn it down the road at some point. Working backwards, because that, again, makes sense, 
we get to the verse before this. Now that we understand what he means when he talks about the righteousness of God and what that's rooted in, we get to the part that we're most familiar with. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, says Paul. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This good news of the gospel, hold on, we're still going to go backwards. I'm going to find a way to do it. Let's start at the end of this sentence here, at the end of this verse. He says this gospel is good news for the Jew first, but also for the Greek. Why is that significant? Why does it matter? Because the good news of the gospel, the righteousness of God, that is not based on what we do or anything we've earned, means it is a righteousness of God, good news, everybody, that can be freely offered to anyone, not just a certain type of person. What? Wait, that's like a parent that has like a million kids, not just one or two kids, right? Because that's the whole, that's the whole point. If your parents love you, uh, I mean, you know you can get that love from them, right? Because there's only a couple of you maybe, or even just one of you if you're a kid who gets a lot of stuff. Wait, the righteousness, the gospel, it tells us that the good news of this gospel, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and then the Greek, If righteousness comes from outside of me and my job is to recognize my need for it and to receive it, then shoot, that means anybody can be righteous. Anybody. Believe it or not, people were mad about this. Have you ever been angry about something and you're self-aware enough to not know why you're angry, but you're just kind of angry about it? I say self-aware because a lot of times you don't even know you're angry unless you're self-aware enough to know that. Then you get to that level, you're like, oh, I know I'm mad, but you're like, I don't exactly know why I'm mad, right? Then you think it's about this thing, and then it turns out it's not about that thing, it's about this thing over here, right? That's kind of how the gospel made a lot of religious people feel. They went, I don't like this. I don't like what this means, and I can't even say why. I just don't like it. I like the old way. I like the way it was before. I liked where I worked hard, and I felt like I was at least a little bit further ahead than all these lousy people behind me or something. I don't like it. It makes me unhappy. You go, I don't like these people. The gospel, apparently, this righteousness of God, means that now I'm in a church with these people, or now I'm the same as these people, and I don't like that. That frustrates me. There's got to be some way for me to still think that I'm better than these people. Nope, sorry, there's not. Oh, man, okay, then I'm mad now, not at these people. I'm mad at the gospel itself. I'm mad at this news, this information, this way of, this thing that Jesus was talking about. Now I'm frustrated with that. Paul's answer to that person is simple. I, says Paul, am not ashamed of this gospel. This gospel that is the power for everyone to be saved both Jew and Gentile. The Jewish people were God's people that he chose. They were the religious leaders. They were the religious people. They were the ones who believed they were working the hardest and doing the best job to earn God's righteousness and to show it to the rest of the world. The the mere idea that this thing would bring together different types of people, some seemingly religious, some not religious at all, who both seem to be able to somehow trust in God for life and salvation, is a crazy revolutionary thing. I'll bet somebody who are walking around with this news, telling people about it, I'll bet they would attract and spend a lot of time with a whole lot of undeserving and shameful people. I'll bet this would really appeal to some of those people. Oh, but they would also probably, if a person were walking around with this message, talking about it, would probably not be very well received by people who, uh, you know, 
thought they were doing pretty well. Think of it this way. You get two scenarios to choose from. You win video lottery or something and you get $500 million. And that's the rest of your life. Or you work hard and at a pretty young age you build a successful company and sell it for $500 million. Which, which person would you like to be? And if, if you're sitting here going, I don't really care. Like, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't know about that. The difference between look at this incredible gift that I've been given versus look at this incredible thing that I have earned uh, is a really big difference for a lot of people. One of the things that we're going to talk about as we continue on in Romans more is that there is a tremendous amount of tension between the Jewish Christian church and the Gentile Christian church. To make a very long story short, uh, we talked last week about how the Jewish people came back from the holy days in Jerusalem, came back from the Passover, and they brought with them this gospel, and they brought with them the good news of this, and they began to spread that gospel. The church in Rome began with Jewish Christians. But then eventually, due to some strife in Rome, um, one of the leaders there would kick out all of the Jewish people, and they would be gone for a while, and the church would continue to grow through Gentile believers. And when the Jewish people come back, they find themselves all of a sudden in this completely different world, where most of the people that call themselves Christians didn't grow up in the Jewish faith, don't have all these rules and customs and traditions that they had. And it is the craziest environment to be in. The result of it was very simple. There were Jewish churches and there were Gentile churches. But do you know what there weren't? Was churches with Jews and Gentiles. Paul says to the people of Rome early on in his letter, do you know why I am not ashamed of the gospel? Because I am not ashamed that the righteousness of God is a righteousness that puts us all in the same room together. That because of the righteousness of God and the good news of the gospel, I am not ashamed of the people that it brings us with. I am not ashamed of the brother who's sitting next to me who didn't grow up with the same level of religious education that I have and may have been seen in a different way by the people of society. I am not ashamed that this gospel is a gospel that brings that person salvation in the same way that it brings me salvation. It brings together Jews and Gentiles. When Paul talks about not being ashamed of the gospel, it matters a lot. Now, we uh, think of this in terms of evangelism. We think of not being ashamed of the gospel like, uh, yes, you shouldn't be afraid to go out and share your faith. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Or we think of being ashamed of the gospel and, and not being ashamed as being somebody who, who knows uh, that you're right and so it doesn't, it doesn't matter that other people are maybe wrong or that they're unhappy with you or that they're maybe alienated by you because you can take pride in knowing that the gospel, this thing that you believe in, you don't have any reason to be ashamed of. Uh, Paul's writing this in an honor-shame culture. He did grow up as a Jewish person after all. And in an honor-shame culture, there's really nothing worse that can happen to you than to be shamed. There's nothing worse that could happen to a person than to experience shame. And Paul is someone who has experienced a fair amount of it. He spent the beginning of his life doing everything that a boy possibly could do to earn honor for himself and his family. And he did that. He earned honor 
in the eyes of the Jewish people for his entire family. His reputation was amazing. I'm sure his family had every reason to be proud of him. He was a zealot, which means he was willing to harm people for the sake of purity of what God wants for the Jewish people. He would then become a follower of Jesus, and from that point on, whenever he was around these Jewish synagogues, whenever he was with these Jewish people, he was no longer a person who had that same level of honor. I'll never forget when I was in elementary school and my friends and I discovered, because we were geniuses, that you could take ketchup packets pretty easily from the cafeteria, take them into the bathroom, and step on them. And I don't know why this ate up a, a, whole, a whole lunchtime, but it did. And I don't know why there was so much joy that it produced within us, but it did. And I don't know why we thought we wouldn't get caught, because if there's one thing that you should realize early on, it's that that phrase, there's no honor among thieves, there's pretty much no honor amongst anybody in elementary school, right? Like, you'll, you'll tell on each other at a moment's notice if you think that you're going to get in trouble yourself, right? So it wasn't long until I was caught, I was in trouble, uh, they found the ketchup all over the bathroom, and they, uh, I, I, I think I thought that, like, they would think there was a fight in there or something, and, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I'll never forget when the principal called my mom and told her I was being suspended for, you know, vandalizing. I'm not sure that I would use that word at the time, but... I'll never forget the time when I was in high school that I was arrested because a friend of mine and I broke into a house. I'll never forget when the officers brought me into that conference room in the police station where my mom was waiting for me. I'll never forget that feeling of, can I please stay here? <laughs> when I saw the look on my mom's face. Right? I think I'm safer behind these bars than I am going anywhere with this woman. There is nothing worse than bringing shame upon those that you love and admire and respect. Now imagine that times a million because that was what it was to live in the Jewish culture. Shame is the worst. Shame is directly connected in people's mind to God's way of feeling about you. If relationships matter, if righteousness is about relationships, then what about the relationships that we have with the people that we admire in society? of our own family. Paul then, with that in mind, makes it very clear that he is not ashamed of this gospel, even though it seems to be that because of this gospel, things are happening in his life that people consider to be shameful. This gospel is going to call religious Jewish people to be in the presence of Gentiles, to be defiled by being near Gentiles, to be eating meals with them, which is considered something that made you unrighteous. But Paul's being very clear, it doesn't make you unrighteous, and you don't have to be ashamed of this gospel. I am not ashamed of a gospel that boasts of how undeserving I am and how all-sufficient God is. But you know what? A lot of people are. A lot of people are ashamed of a gospel that boasts about how sufficient God is and how this isn't about the hard work that I've done or the dedication in my life. If you want to know sort of what it's like for a person to receive something that they didn't deserve and to feel guilt over it, talk to someone who survived cancer. As I've talked with people who have survived cancer after multiple diagnoses, 
Diagnoses? Just diagnoses, thank you. That does sound a lot better. As I've talked with people, I was talking with someone in our church a few weeks ago, asking, how are you doing? After their, I think, I think third um, diagnosis of cancer. And they weren't talking to me about the physical effects that they're dealing with anymore. They were talking to me about the emotional, the psychological, about what it was like to try to go on. One of my closest friends was uh, diagnosed, who's the exact same age as me, with cancer in his late 20s with a family with small children and would go back years later to the same doctor for a checkup to find out that he was the only one in the group of 10 people diagnosed at his time who was still alive. If you want to know what it's like to have to walk around knowing that you have something that you don't deserve and that that isn't always the best feeling, talk to someone in that situation. The righteousness that God has given us is something that we don't deserve. We're not to feel guilty about it. We're not to feel ashamed of it. But we might be inclined to do that. And even look for ways to maybe still do a little bit of work on our own. Or at the very least, when we tell other people about it, be like, well, you should probably do some work to earn this thing because your life's a mess. But Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for that reason. I am not ashamed of a gospel that has included the religious and the irreligious and the non-religious, says Paul. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it brings salvation to everyone who believes. He acknowledges that the gospel was always going to the Jewish people first because God chose them. And that's something that Paul is again and again and again going to say in Romans. But it went to everyone ultimately. There is no shame in the life that the gospel produces and the kind of community that it leads to. You know, one of the things, uh, what I said about the gospel in the beginning was that one of the hardest things to wrap our mind around is the fact that you simply must believe it and trust. That if you trust and put your faith in it, then you will be saved. That it's not based on your physical behavior or obedience to something. It's very hard for us to wrap our minds around how that works. Because a lot of times, trust and faith isn't being asked to believe in something that's impossible. It's simply being asked to believe in something that feels impossible. Or that seems like the opposite of all the data that's coming in. I've talked to friends who are pilots who get instrument rated. And what that means when you're instrument rated is that you can fly based solely on your instruments and not what you're seeing, which apparently is a very important thing to be able to do if you want to fly much of the time. Because the moment you fly at night, the moment you fly into a storm, the moment you fly into a cloud, up seems like down, left seems like right, you don't know how close the ground is, and without the instruments telling you what's really there, it begins to get very confusing and scary. When we are asked and told to believe and trust in the good news of the gospel for our very salvation, for our very sense of righteousness, we're being asked to trust in something that feels like the opposite of all the data that we've observed in the world around us. Everything we've observed tells us, no, what we need is a world full of people who are working hard to be righteous. 
The problem is you're doing it wrong, and you kind of got the right idea, but you're a hypocrite, and you, I don't know what you're doing, but that's what the world needs. When according to Paul in the gospel, what the world needs is people who are a lot better at receiving a righteousness that they don't work for and work towards. And what we'll see in Romans as we continue on is that there is nothing greater than people who are living their lives out of the gratitude that that produces, not the obligation to earn it later on. Let's pray. Father, when we say that we are not ashamed of the gospel, it would be naive for us to say it like we know it's 100% true every time we say it, Lord. We say it because we want it to be true of us, that we are not people who are ashamed of this good news that seems to fly in the face of the way the world works. God, as we continue in worship this morning, as we continue in communion this morning, Lord, our prayer is that you would bring us to focusing on the one who made it possible for us to have this righteousness. That you would help us to look inward at ourselves and to look upward at you and to look at the cross and to see the one who makes this righteousness possible for us, Lord. God, we have done nothing to deserve the righteousness that you offer us. God, there are some of us today who... Uh, This might be the first time that we've really recognized and understood that we don't have that righteousness within us. That the things that we're trying to do to be good, the things that we're trying to do to justify ourselves are just not ever going to even come close to being enough. If anything, the harder we try, the more it seems to lead to things that look even like hypocrisy. God, would you help those of us in that place to see, Lord, that this is the first step of receiving the good news of your gospel, simply having a real understanding of ourselves and our own hearts, Lord. And for those who have come to trust in the good news of the gospel but struggle to put the full weight of our bodies and our lives in um, the righteousness that you produce, that struggle to be ashamed sometimes with the church that it creates, the person that it makes in us, and the life that it calls us to leave, Lord. Would you help us to let go of the independence, let go of the self-reliance, let go of the need to do it on our own, Lord? Would you make us overwhelmed with gratefulness for you and your son, God? It's in your name that we pray. Amen.